0: welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you will. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Begin reading in that text here in just a moment. A couple of, uh, one reminder I forgot to mention to you this upcoming Thursday evening. We will have our Monday Thursday service at six We'll be right here in the sanctuary. Be a time of us, uh, a time for us to reflect on the events that led into Jesus' crucifixion uh, that night before He died, when He instituted the New Covenant. It is one of my favorite observances of the Lord's Supper that we do as a congregation, and it's been a couple of years since we've been able to gather and do that. So we would invite you to be here with us on Thursday evening at 6.30, as well as uh, on Sunday with our Easter celebration. Folks, there's hardly a week that goes by in my life as your pastor that I don't talk to a church member here who has a son or a daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter who is, for whatever reason, strayed from the faith, who, for whatever reason, no longer attends church. Uh, Maybe it is a drift away from God. They have the faith that they grew up with internally, but it's not being practiced externally in their church attendance or their faith relationship. For some, it may be something different than that. It may be that they have decided they're no longer a follower of Jesus or no longer want to have anything to do with the life of the church and the gospel. This text that we're going to look at in just a moment, 1 Timothy chapter 4, speaks to that very issue. That's what the content is. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, why do people depart the faith? Why do they drift from the faith? And what do we do as followers of Jesus with a text like this? How does it help us not only understand what's going on in the lives of our loved ones or friends or neighbors or family members, uh, and then what do we do to search them out, bring them back? How, How do we navigate not only what's going on, but how do we live faithfully in response to it? I saw a post a week or two ago that dealt with this subject. It suggested that 75% of those who attend church as children and teenagers for some reason drift away from the church during their years of 18 to 29. So 18 to 29-year-olds, 75% of them, even having been raised in church, I'm not talking about all 18 to 29-year-olds, 75% of those that grew up in church When they get to that age point, they walk away from church. The question was, why did the 25% stay? What was it that kept that percentage still engaged in the church? suggested that, number one, they ate dinner with their family five to seven nights a week, so their their primary relationship with mom and dad and brothers and sisters was right. Number two, they served with their family in ministry, meaning that for their family... Faith was more than a one-hour window on a Sunday morning. Faith was something that was lived out regularly during their lives, serving their church or community. Number three, they had at least one spiritual experience per week in the home. It means that faith is not just in church. I wish I could say this, and I will say this in all of our services today. But I wish I could, I could get this in the hearts and minds of moms and dads, of little ones and teenagers. And I want you to hear this, and I want you to hear this from my heart. If you're expecting your child or your teenager to have a strong relationship with Jesus, and the only interaction they have with the good news of Jesus is in the church once a week, it's not enough. It's not enough. They need to see it from mom and dad. They need to see it in a devotional time. They need to see it in a walk with God regularly in your lives as parents and as grandparents. Let me give you a fourth factor in the 25% staying in church. They were entrusted with ministry responsibility at an early age. This is just a good reminder, folks. Uh, There is no junior Holy Spirit. If you're 5 and you trust in Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that indwells me at 41 is the same Holy Spirit that indwells my son at 7 and my other son at 11. I was so tickled yesterday at the Easter egg hunt. We had teenagers that have been helping uh, Wednesday night with our kids at Awana. They were there setting out eggs, and they were there hanging out with kids, and some of them were participating in face painting and other activities there. Listen, they were entrusted with ministry at an early age. And then here's number five, the fifth reason why that 25% stayed. They had at least one faith-focused adult in their lives other than their parents. Y'all know this to be true. I love teaching my sons how to do things. I love it. I enjoy it. I don't know much about soccer, but we do play some soccer. I know a little bit about baseball. I played it growing up. But I'm just going to make a confession. I won't say this really in the service that he's in. He doesn't listen to a flipping thing I say when I teach him how to take grounders or swing a bat. And I know more than he does. I've done it for longer. But you know what? When he sees some other coach tell him how to swing a bat or take a grounder, man, he is all ears. He's listening. Folks, you want your children and grandchildren to walk with God? They need somebody else in their lives. A pastor, a youth leader, a Sunday school teacher, a neighbor. They need somebody else in their lives exemplifying faith. The reason I share that is this. I think Paul in this text wants the church to be deep in the gospel sound doctrine and sound behavior, for the very reason that in the church and in our community, it's not just something that we can take in some kind of placid or apathetic way. Hear me say this, and this text is going to bear this out. Those children and grandchildren that have strayed, those that you're concerned and worried about, Those that are on your minds, those that are still in our community of faith here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, hear me say this. We're at a war for their souls. This is not some, okay, we'll go to church sometimes and everything will be okay. No, we're at war. Listen to the language Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says... That in the later times, that's basically the times after the crucifixion and resurrection. We're in the last days in that category. The Spirit expressly says, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. He shared this with the church in verbal form. He's writing it to the church now. says what? That some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves, what? To deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and by prayer." I've entitled this message, Enemies of the Gospel. And folks, there are people and there are systems and there are demonic powers that don't like it when we tell people how they can come to faith in Jesus. And they don't like it when we invite people to grow in a faith relationship with Christ. They don't like it that we're a church who God is doing some things in the hearts and lives of children, teenagers, and adults. In both the next two services, 9, 30, and 11, we're going to baptize folks who have put their faith in Jesus and trust in Jesus, and they're going to declare that publicly to the congregations that are in attendance. And Satan hates that. We live in a world that is pushing against the glories of the gospel and the truth of the gospel message. And so, here's the first thing we need to realize. We need to realize that we are in a spiritual war over the gospel. A spiritual war. Some will depart from the faith. That word depart is a fist to me. It basically means to apostatize. Now, now some people depart from the faith by merely drifting away. And we've seen that over the last couple of years. I know COVID created some reasons for that, some some concerns about health. And and it's interesting to me, I mean, I'm going to meddle a minute, but it's interesting to me that, the thing they told us you shouldn't do is gather. I mean, we were all isolated. And certainly it affected everything else that we do in life. But you got to go to the grocery store. I don't know, No matter whether you got to order grocery pickup, you got to go to work. And many of you still had to work through COVID, but you couldn't gather. It almost seemed like the strategy for dealing with COVID was to keep the church from being together. And whether or not that was intentional on the part of leaders and politicians, I, I, I will tell you it was intentional on the part of the enemy who absolutely hates the people of God. If he can keep us separated and distracted from one another, and I'm going to tell you he's been successful in the lives of some. They have drifted, and they have drifted, and they have drifted, and they've stayed away. Some people drift over time. Some people drift because they believe in something that's false. We'll get to that in a moment. But in any case, departing from the faith is to apostatize. It's to walk away from the gospel. It could be as intentional as those Christian leaders and and thought leaders and speakers and sometimes musicians who say, "I am deconstructing my faith. I'm walking away from what I've sung about or what I've preached on all these years." And it doesn't take too many clicks on a Google search to discover how many people over the last ten or fifteen years have done something just like that. For some, it's not so much an intentional move away theologically, it's a move away from the teachings of Scripture morally. And so they choose to behave in a wicked fashion. And they depart from the faith. That's the world we're living in, folks. That's the world Paul was preaching about 2,000 years ago. It's not new. What he's telling the church... In Ephesus, under, speaking through Timothy, is stuff that we're still dealing with 2,000 years later. They'll depart from the faith by what? Devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Hear this, folks. Sound teaching. Gospel-oriented behavior. That lets us know we're in a spiritual battle. Our warfare is not primarily against another political party that we disagree with or even a culture of people that don't know Jesus. That's not who we're at war with. Folks, those are prospective family members, those in the culture that don't yet know Jesus. Our war is with a spiritual enemy who hates us far worse than anything the culture can throw at us. But we need to recognize we're in a spiritual battle. It is not enough for us to think, okay, I'm going to be fine if I just, if I just do my church thing this week. No, it, it, we need to recognize that it is warfare. The demons hate us. Satan wants to destroy your faith. And if he can do so by destroying your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter or my sons, if he can do so, if he can shake my faith through that method, then I'm going to tell you something. He's going to do that. Folks, we're at a spiritual war. Satan hates us. And so the foundation that Paul says of this apostasy is spiritual. It's demonic. It's the enemies of this world or enemies in this world that hate us as followers of Jesus. But it doesn't just have a spiritual root and a demonic root. It has a human root. Notice what Paul says in the second part of that. through. Um, teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars, that's human persons, who lie, don't tell the truth, whose consciences are seared. Talking about people who no longer have a God-oriented gospel that is governing their behavior. Consciences being seared is as if your, your conscience is seared with a hot iron. In the ancient world, they didn't have the antiseptic medicines. They didn't stitch up wounds. They took a red-hot iron and they branded a wound with a red-hot iron because it would cauterize the wound. It was a way to keep you from bleeding out. You can imagine how painful that might be in a medical sphere. But in this case, what Paul says is they've done that with their consciences. Do you know why some who claim the name of Jesus can behave in all sort of immoral, ungodly, wicked ways? And if you read on in the Second Timothy, I mean, they were doing all sort of depraved types of things. They were taking advantage of, uh, of women. They were using their depraved consciences to get their way in terms of pleasure and in terms of money. And the reality of that picture of false teachers who sear their consciences morally is something that's been going on for 2,000 years. You want to know why some pastors and church leaders fall? Because they stopped listening to the gospel that they said they were preaching. They've cauterized. They have branded their conscience so that God no longer speaks into their life. That's a warning for us. He's not talking about people who were outside of the faith, who were expecting to live immoral lives. If you don't know Jesus, I don't expect you not to be an adulterer. I don't expect you not to do things evil and pagan. That's who sinners are. Now, some live moral lives. Some live 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 good lives, if you want to use that term loosely, who are not Christians. But I don't expect a non-Christian to behave morally. No, what Paul's talking about is these are people who had some brand, some affinity, some connection with Christianity, but they have cauterized their faith. They have seared their consciences so that nothing gets through to them that is that lets them know that the path that they're drifting on is a path of wickedness and evil. Folks, we need to realize everything we're doing here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. It is a wonderful weekly experience of worship and celebration. It is an opportunity for us to develop our faith and grow. But I want you to hear me 24-7, every single day of the week, we're in a spiritual war. Satan hates us and wants to destroy our faith. And folks, we need to realize that. Secondly, not only we need to realize that we're in a spiritual war, but we need to identify the tactics that the enemy is using to keep people from the gospel. What is he doing to help people or to draw people away? What is he doing to lead people to depart from the faith? What is he doing to keep people from the faith? I'm going to give you three of those that are found in the text. The first one is that Satan will use lies. Out and out, false teaching in order to lead people away from the faith. He talks about this on a number of occasions. He talks about the liars in the text. He talks about those who are deceitful spirits, who teach false doctrine. And, and what, are, what are lies? They're all kind of lies that Satan has used over the years to distract us from the teaching of what God says. Primarily the lies that are present in our culture and that lead people away are lies about the book. There lies about what God's Word is and what God's Word says. That's a tactic Satan has used ever since the garden. To Eve, he said, in serpent form, has God said? That was the first temptation that Satan used in the garden, has God said? And today, we're living in a world where theological liberals and others, and we'll get to some of those, and those who like to behave and do whatever they want to, what do they do? They reinvent what this says. They question what this says. They argue with what this says. They discount what this says. And they do so in all sort of other fashions and from all sort of other worldviews. Satan uses lies to get people to depart the faith or keep people from the faith. Why does he do that? Because the person who is genuinely seeking truth is much closer to the gospel even if they've never heard it than the person who is holding on to some dogmatic belief system even if it is false. It is much easier for me to help someone who's seeking out the truth meet Jesus than it is for me to talk to a Muslim who is bound by a lie or to a Hindu who is bound by a lie, or to someone who is a secular humanist who is bound by the lies that truth and greatness is found from within rather than from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you something, Satan has used worldviews and ideologies and other religious systems to bind people and keep them from the gospel. And he's used it to draw people away. He uses it with false teachers. He uses it with people who teach things that are inconsistent with the gospel, prosperity theology, or theological liberalism, who in the very churches that are supposed to be proclaiming the life-changing good news of Jesus Christ are hearing things that are false and not true. Folks, that's why Paul says later on in this very chapter to Timothy, pay close attention to you, your behavior, and also to what you teach. I've known folks, I've watched folks drift away from the truth of the gospel into false teaching and false ideology, and that false teaching has led to people drifting from the good news of Jesus. Satan will use lies to keep people away from the gospel and to cause people to depart from the gospel. He'll also use legalism to do that. In the text, the particular form of false teaching that had rooted itself in Ephesus was this. Pick up with me in verse 3. What they're saying, these false teachers are saying, verse 3, is that they forbid marriage, they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So, what is it that these false teachings in in Ephesus, these false teachers rather, in Ephesus were saying? They were saying that you shouldn't get married. Or they were saying that you should abstain from certain foods because you can have a better relationship with God this way. Where where did those come from? Uh, Scholars are kind of divided on this specific connection points where these false teachers develop these ideas. But in the Jewish, uh, one of the Jewish sects, the Essenes, the Essenes taught that you could be closer to God if you avoided relational encumbrances. In other words, you could be closer to God if you weren't married. And so some of the Essenes over their particular cultic experiences, they're, they're, uh, they're seeking out after God. They didn't get married. They, they avoided marriage so that they could devote all of their time to what they thought was a better faith relationship with God. Some of them abstained from certain types of foods. And so it's possible that some of that Essene ideology have drifted itself into the church of Jesus Christ here in Ephesus. And some of these false teachers were saying things like this to the congregation. Hey, listen, you'll be able to get closer to God if you don't get married. You'll be able to be closer to God if you reject that marriage that you're already in. You'll be able to be closer to God if you don't eat that food but eat this food because this food makes you closer to God and that food doesn't. That sounds a little weird, but here's the reality. How many of us have watched legalistic demands put within the body of Jesus Christ? We've seen that over the years where someone says, you'll be closer to God if you wear a dress rather than wear pants, ladies. Or, 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 or uh, you know, ladies, you got to cover your heads. You don't cover your heads, you're not going to be closer to God. Or, or guys, you, you know, you can't have a beard, or you can't have a beard, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. Uh, don't do this, because if you do this, you're not going to be close to God. It, 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 you've got to make sure you abstain from these things, or you've got to make sure you control these things. Here's what legalism does. In all of its forms, legalism teaches this that you can get to God or make God happy with you by what you do. That is legalism. Legalism says you get to God by your behavior. That is anti-gospel. Folks, that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible doesn't offer any pathway for any person to be right with God or close to God by what they do. The Bible offers, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, one pathway to God, and it is through Jesus Christ. And the only way we can come to God through Jesus Christ is to realize that I can't do anything to make God pleased with me. I love that you're here worshiping with God at church. I think if you get an extra crown for your church attendance, you get a little extra crown for attending at 8 o'clock in the morning. Because I'm praying to heaven that I get a little extra crown for preaching at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm just jesting there. Because nothing that we do earns us any better favor with God. Our our favor with God doesn't come through our behavior. Our favor with God comes through Christ who died on the cross, who took our place, who rose from the dead so that you and I could be forgiven and cleansed. Folks, let me say this. It might be good for some people to remain single. Paul was single, I think. Jesus definitely was single. There are instances of people throughout Christian history who have been single. There's nothing wrong with being single. The issue is this. The issue is this. You can't get God to be happier with you because you don't get married or because you don't eat this food or because you don't eat that food. This was probably a rooted theological heresy that that also took uh took took off with the Gnostic teaching later on that would come down and say what happens in the flesh is evil and what happens in the spirit world is right. And so there was a spirit-flesh type dualism. And the ideology went something like this. Anything you do in the flesh is tainted by wickedness, sinfulness, and evil and so it can't be good, it can't be right, it can't be godly. We need to focus completely on what happens in the internal, the spiritual world, the world of the mind, the world of, of kind of experiences and relationships And folks, that's just bunk. That's bogus scripturally. God did not create our flesh to be evil and our spirit to be good. We're all evil. We're evil through and through. But when He created us, all the way back in the garden, He created us, what's the word? What's the word? Good. Good through and through. Sin caused everything to fall. And here's what legalism does. Legalism tells us that we can get to God or... God be happier with us based on our behavior. The gospel tells us you can't hope to have God happier with you by what you do or don't do. We need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll give you a third tactic that the enemy uses to keep people away. It's not found directly in the text, but ironically it connects to some of the same ideology that's found in the text. It's liberalism, theological Liberalism is used today. I think if Paul were writing this letter 2,000 years later, I think he would address theological liberalism. Theological liberalism is the opposite of legalism. Legalism kind of tells us that we need to behave a certain way in order for God to be happy with us. Theological liberalism came along and developed in the 1700s and 1800s as a response to the higher criticism based in Scripture. In other words, theological liberals came along and because the Enlightenment said, hold on, a miracle can't happen and, and, and some of the teaching of the Scripture is a little bit crazy and out there, like Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, who rises from the dead? Resurrections don't happen. So theological liberals came along and were embarrassed by the plain teaching of Scripture. And so they tried to make sense of Scripture outside of and taking away from the miraculous in Scripture. And so they started rewriting it, rewriting Scripture, restating Scripture. And essentially their short argument is, let's keep all the places in the Bible that tell us to be nice to one another. Let's keep all the places in the Bible where Jesus tells us to love one another. But those things that embarrass us, those things that that we're not sure about, those things that we can't prove happen, such as the miracles and such as the teaching on morality, about sexuality, and such as all those things. Let's ignore those. Let's kind of set those aside and let's do the things that make us feel better about ourselves. And mainline denominations all across the United States have bought into theological liberalism and you can go to their churches, you can sit in their worship services, and half of what they say, you're going to be like, okay, that sounds pretty cool. The problem is the things that they don't say. The problem is the, thing, the truth that they don't ground Scripture in. And here's what happens. If you don't believe in all of the Scripture and what the Scripture says about our sinfulness and our need for Jesus, what does it do? It pushes you away from the true solution, which is Jesus Christ. Theological liberalism is running rampant in American society today. Let me give you a specific instance of where that connects to the application or the the, the story that Paul was using here. A fascinating book. It's a little bit heady. It's entitled The Rise uh, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Uh, I'm about three-quarters of the way through that book myself. And in that particular book, he's asking this question and answering this question. How in the world do we get to a society in 2020... Where a person can walk into their doctor and say, I don't feel like I am the, bi- the biological gender that I am. How can that happen? And then the solution be, let's fix your body, not your mind. That's the question that Carl Truman was asking. And he gives the whole history of how that particular transgendered ideology that's so prevalent in our culture today, so prevalent from the news media to Disney to school systems, I mean, where all of those things are are raising themselves in contemporary culture. How did we get there? And he traces the history of that. And one of the things that he recognizes is that unfortunately, because of the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s, sex has been politicized. It's no longer just what we do in our bedrooms. It's no longer what you do in your private life. It has an effect in every other part of society. He put it this way. He said society now intuitively associates sexual freedom with political freedom because the notion that in a very deep sense we are defined by our sexual desires Is something that has penetrated all levels of culture. And that's absolutely true. Sexual freedom is a part of contemporary American experience. And why is that? What is the goal of that? What is the purpose of that? From some of those who promoted sexual freedom in the 60s and 70s and articulated their desire, their desire is this, and I quote, "...the destruction of the family." The goal of unabashed sexual freedom politically and socially in our world is the destruction of the family. Why is that? Because the family is the primary means by which values are transmitted from generation to generation. Why is it that a law in Florida that's just common sense, don't sexualize children, is screened at politically from Disney to other organizations? Why is that? It's because if you can shake up the family where moral values are taught over and over again, you can have all of society because you can basically teach kids to think what you want them to think rather than what is true and right. Here's what's ironic about that, or maybe not so ironic, it's just a tactic and a tool of the enemy. 2,000 years ago, the false teachers in Ephesus were saying, don't get married, and that's the way you get close to God. 2,000 years later, the false teachers, theological liberalism, all of that that is permeating our society. And by the way, it has embedded itself theologically in churches and mainstream denominations all across our country. It's not just out there in the political culture. See the United Methodist Church and the divides they're having. See the Episcopal Church and the divides they're having. See the churches that are arguing about who can be pastors. won't go into all the details of that. My point is this, it has embedded itself in the church, and here's the, the, fashion, the, the, the important point. Not, don't get married and you'll get close to God, but marriage is no longer important. Marriage between a man and a woman no longer matters. Marry whoever, whenever, however, whatever that looks like. And it's not going to stop with the Supreme Court ruling of 2015. The agenda of the politicization of sex is not over. It won't be over until all of society not only abides by what they think is right, the idea of tolerance, but uh, affirms all of those ideas and behaviors. If you don't think we're in a spiritual war that is going on in our school systems, that's going on in our culture all around us, and Satan will use any of that and has used that. Has used that. Even in our very church even with some of those that grew up in our church, to push them away from the truth of the gospel. He's used that ideology that is present in liberalism to push them away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what's the solution? What in the world do we do with that as followers of Christ? How do we combat that? Let me give you one specific statement and a couple of ways we can put it in practice. First, we need to abide... This is the third point. We need to abide in the goodness of God through the gospel. What's our response? Just to remind you, Paul's culture, the culture Paul was preaching to in Ephesus, was a minority culture. They didn't control the laws. They didn't control the governing systems. They didn't control what was taught in whatever school. They were a minority culture. So what did Paul tell them to do? Notice this. For everything, verse 4, created by God is good, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let me tell you something. The good life is not found in unabashed sexual freedom. The good life is not found in control and legalism. The good life is not found in the lies that the enemy would use. You know where the good life is found? The good life is found when we, as followers of Jesus, realize that God created us originally to be in relationship with Him, in a good relationship with Him, and that life can be tapped and experienced by following the Jesus of the gospel. You want the good life? Praise Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Live in understanding of the gospel. Abide by the gospel. Hold on to the gospel. You want the good life in your marriage? You realize that it's only because Jesus died for you and your spouse that you can forgive one another. Only because Jesus died for you and your spouse that you can enter into a healthy, long-term, ongoing relationship with one another. We need to abide in the goodness of the God through the gospel. Where do we find that? We find that in the Word. Notice what he says. He says, Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by what? The Word of God in prayer. This is our framework, folks. This is our foundation. You want to make sure you know what is gospel-oriented? Don't just listen to preachers tell you. I mean, I want you to hear me. I'm going to preach based on what Scripture says. But there are some preachers that some of you listen to that aren't telling you what this says. You need to read what this says. The Word of God is the framework for us understanding what is the gospel and what God expects of us. The Word and prayer. Folks, one of the reasons we pray is to make sure that we understand Scripture correctly and that we praise and worship the God who we uh, we are related to, who we know, who has saved us, who has redeemed us. So how do we abide in the goodness of God through the gospel? We abide in the goodness of God through the Word. We abide in the goodness of God through prayer and acknowledging that His greatness and His glory. We abide in the goodness of God through witness when we share the very truth of who Jesus is in our words and our testimonies and our affirmations. Let me close with three specific invitations for those of us in the room. Some of you are here today and you know of family members who have departed the faith or don't have faith. And when I opened up with that, you thought about those. Here's what I want you to do. At this invitation, I want you to come pray for them. Maybe you come to the altar. That would be perfectly fine and very appropriate. But definitely pray for them at least at your seat. And here's why. Because as much as you want them to come to know Christ, as much as you want them to return to the faith, I promise you God wants them to return to Him more. Jesus is the Good Shepherd. He left the ninety-nine. He left the folks sitting in church. He left the sheep that were in the sheepfold to chase after the one that had drifted, the one that had gotten lost, the one that had wandered away. So Jesus loves your children and grandchildren far more than I do, far more than you do. And He is not done chasing them. So I'm going to invite you to pray for them. I'm going to invite you to pray that God will get their hearts and get their minds and bring them back to Himself. Some of you are here today. And uh, you're followers of Christ, but you've become encumbered by one of these enemies. You're believing in a lie. You've kind of leaned toward legalism or leaned toward theological liberalism. I just want to invite you, if you're struggling with something along those lines, ask me for some resources that can help guide you back into a truthful thought process about who God is and what God says. Come on Wednesday nights, learn some doctrine, deepen your understanding. And by all means, if you're bound by legalism or liberalism, or you're believing a lie that someone else has told you about what the faith should be, confess it and repent of it and come to God and the gospel because He'll cleanse and forgive. And if there's any here today that have not trusted in Jesus alone, you have departed the faith and you haven't come back to Jesus, I'd invite you to come back to Jesus. Come to Jesus for the first time and be saved. Come back to Jesus and He'll cleanse and forgive you. Respond to Him as your Lord and Savior because the gospel is good news for all of us. I'm going to ask if you would to stand as we enter this time of invitation. Lord, I come to You in this time of prayer. And I know some in this congregation are burdened by a child or grandchild. They're burdened by a neighbor. They're burdened by a niece or a nephew. They're burdened by someone they know who has drifted from the faith. Departed. They've believed lies that they've been told. They've been bound by unrighteousness or or sinfulness. Their conscience has been seared. I don't know what it is that's kept them away specifically. Lord God, I know that you're the good shepherd. I know that you came looking for me when I was drifting into my own sense of self-righteousness. Lord, I know you're going to go after them. I know you are. I know even now, even now in this worship service, you're at work and that child, that grandchild, you're at work, you're putting people in their lives. You're putting people who are telling the truth to them. You're putting people around them who love them. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you help us as parents and pastors, as grandparents and spiritual leaders, as those who deeply care for those who have drifted. Give us the confidence and the persistence to continue praying that you'll be at work in their lives. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You come. You come pray for that child, that son or daughter, that grandchild. You come pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.